0: Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. In recent weeks, high-profile international events have dominated the headlines. On today's show, we spend time talking about the changing role of the U.S. on the international stage under the Trump administration. Last week, President Donald Trump returned from a summit meeting with North Korea empty-handed. And now it appears that country is rebuilding some of its missile infrastructure, specifically a rocket launch test site. President Trump has proposed big budget cuts to the State Department, and many career diplomats have left the Foreign Service during his time in office. We speak with Ambassador Nick Burns, a 20-year veteran of the Diplomatic Corps who is now retired. We also sit down with Steve Hall, a 30-year CIA officer who spent his career running counterintelligence operations in Eurasia. In late February, former U.S. Ambassador Nicholas Burns visited Tucson to give a talk to the Tucson Committee on Foreign Relations. During his 23 years of foreign service, he was U.S. Ambassador to NATO and Greece. He was also a lead negotiator on limiting Iran's nuclear program. Burns spoke about many aspects of international affairs, including the leadership role of the U.S., China's global position, and North Korea. After his lecture, I sat down with Ambassador Burns to talk about these issues further. The United
1: States has been,
0: since the Second
1: World War, the strongest country in the world. We have the largest economy, the most powerful military. We're the most influential country. We have this enormous strength in our private sector, our businesses, our universities. And every president, from Franklin Roosevelt on to Barack Obama, every Republican president and Democratic president has believed that the only way we can protect ourselves is to be working with other countries around the world in military alliances like NATO. The only way we can be successful economically is to trade, that immigrants actually strengthen us, legal immigrants, not weaken us. I know that's a hot issue in Arizona, in this part of the country, but the facts are that immigrants add jobs and create jobs as small business people in this country. If we believe in democracy with conviction around the world, we can be successful. If that's what made us great, that we're in alliances, we believe in free trade, we believe in legal immigration and taking in refugees because it's the right thing to do, and we believe in democracy, Donald Trump has turned each of those on its head. He's disavowing our alliances. He's not a strong leader of NATO. He hasn't stood up to Putin. He's been criticizing the democratic leaders of NATO, not the authoritarian leaders outside NATO. He's against free trade. He's, of course, slashing immigration and refugees, legal immigration and refugees, and he has not stood up for democracy. So I worry that we're going backwards. I I worry that we're weakening. Uh, We left the climate change agreement. We're the largest carbon emitter in the world, along with China, so we have some responsibility here to help the rest of the world, and we just walked away under President Trump's leadership. We left the Iran nuclear deal. I was the Iran negotiator for President Bush. I supported what President Obama did. I thought it was smart, it locked the Iranians up. I just worry that the United States now, as we're in retreat, we're not working well with others. The President calls people names. He's a bull in a China shop. He's made some enemies for this country, and as someone who is a career diplomat, I work for Republicans as well as Democrats. I worry about his leadership. I think it's not been good for us internationally.
0: Two years from now, we have a presidential election if there is a change in leadership, will the world view of the United States change again as soon as a new president is elected or sworn in, or is there more damage than that?
1: I think that governments around the world will quickly return to wanna work with the United States, particularly the democratic governments that Trump has pushed away. Because we're so powerful, our leadership is so important to the world, that they miss it. And I think if a normal president comes in, whether it's a Democrat or Republican replaces President Trump, a normal president who will understand that we have to lead, that we have to be engaged with the rest of the world, it's in our interest, then I think those governments will come back quickly. I wonder about average people around the world. In Tucson at the World Affairs Council dinner, I gave the example of Germany, where the number one public issue is climate change. And when we left the climate change agreement, it had a profoundly negative impact on the people of Germany. And um, in a recent public opinion poll, seven to 8% of the German people trust Donald Trump. 11% of the the German people trust Vladimir Putin. 72% of the German people trusted Barack Obama when he was president of the United States. You can see how far we've fallen because when the United States says, we're not gonna help, we're not gonna participate, we're taking our marbles and we're going home, people react badly to that because we're the thousand pound gorilla in the world and we're essential to helping other people meet these big human problems head on.
0: Your career uh, diplomat worked all over the world. As you said, the United States has taken our marbles and gone home. Two years from now, maybe a different president. Maybe other governments engage us again, but how long does it take us to take our marbles and spread them back around the world in a way that restores us to power?
1: And I think this is such a good question, and I think it's why we need a big national discussion here in Tucson, throughout the state of Arizona, in my home state of Massachusetts, you know, all the way across the country. The American people obviously see what's going on they see the retreat of donald trump they see the weakness in not confronting putin for having attacked our election trump's never done anything about that they see him embracing kim jong un and criticizing and pushing angela merkel our best friend in the world away and it's not right and it's hurting the country and so i hope that people will make foreign policy an issue in the 2020 election. We should be looking at all the candidates, asking them tough questions. How would you lead us forward in a responsible way? How would you make sure that other countries are shouldering some of the burden, not just our soldiers, for instance? How would you make sure that we're back trying to help the world and ourselves deal with climate change? What do we do about human trafficking rings? What do we do about pandemics? I think we as citizens need to take control here and insist that our politicians think about these issues, be smart and intelligent about them, be thoughtful, and provide leadership.
0: You recently wrote a paper on this coming up the 70th anniversary of NATO. You did agree with President Trump on one thing. Maybe maybe some of the NATO allies or partners need to spend a little bit more and, and get a little bit more involved in defense.
1: Ambassador Doug Lute and I were both former American ambassadors to NATO. We interviewed 60 people on both sides of the Atlantic over the last six months on the basis of those interviews, wrote this report that we presented in in Munich last weekend, which tries to assess where is NATO at 70, because April 4th of this year is the 70th anniversary of the signing of the Washington Treaty, the NATO treaty that has been the most important treaty the United States has ever signed, the most powerful alliance ever, is the NATO alliance. We're the leader of it. And we looked at the fact that it has a lot of challenges. We try to enumerate those challenges and give some recommendations for how to surmount them. One of the challenges is that the United States is spending about 3.5% of our gross domestic product on defense, most of our European allies spending well below that. Germany, for instance, spends 1.24% of its GDP on defense opposed compared to the U.S. at 35 And so one of the messages in our report is that President Trump's been right to say to the Europeans, you need to do more. The United States and our taxpayers shouldn't be shouldering shouldering the entire burden. I think every president has believed this. President Trump's spoken very loudly about it, and he's got their attention. And because of what President Trump's been saying, but also because of Putin's recent aggression in Crimea and Ukraine over the last five years, we've seen real increases in European defense budgets for four consecutive years. So they predate President Trump. So I give him credit for this, but there are other factors here. And I think President Trump, now that he's made his point, instead of being chief critic of NATO, he should become chief cheerleader of NATO. That's what we said in our report.
0: When it comes to Vladimir Putin, how long will it take potentially for a new president two years from now to push Russia back or at least stop them.
1: Putin's a big problem for us because he has invaded Georgia and Ukraine in the last 10 years and stolen their territory. He, in, he invaded and attacked our election in a very serious way through his cyber core of hackers, and we've got to prevent him from um, having any impact on our elections and our democracy. You need to be strong with Putin. He's an authoritarian bully, but he respects strength. I think President Obama and Chancellor Merkel stood up to him after 2014. George W. Bush definitely stood up to him after the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Donald Trump is not. Donald Trump says consistently just read the tweets, I want to be his friend. I want to meet him. Um, not realizing that, you know, with any kind of bully that we might have met in the playground when we were eight years old, you quickly learn as a little kid. You can't placate a bully. You have to show some backbone to stand up to them so there's a little bit of respect there. I don't think that President Putin respects Donald Trump and that worries me because deterrence, the ability to convince Putin not to take advantage of NATO, not to attack one of our allies, it all depends on his perception of us. If he thinks we're weak, he might try to take advantage and that's a worrisome
0: thing. You also mentioned China. And you gave an interesting perspective. People say that China is about to, to be a world power. You said, no, 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 they're coming back. Historically, they've always been a world power. They've just been in a, in a dip lately.
1: You know, in our national conversation, what we always say is, as reporters and academics and citizens, China's rising to world power. It's actually returning because in 18 of the last 20 centuries, China's had the largest global economy. It's a major civilizational force in East Asia, and now globally. It has the second largest economy to us, the second strongest military to us. It's the greatest manufacturing and export country in the world. Unfortunately, we're not any longer. It has a very uh, smart, agile president in Xi Jinping. He's filled with ambition. And I did tell the story uh, tonight in Tucson of an interview I I, uh, had with Condoleezza Rice in a public forum in Aspen, Colorado a year and a half ago when I asked her, what do you worry about the most? And I was thinking, Iran, North Korea, Putin. And she said, without missing a beat, she said, we've lost our self-confidence. And that has stayed with me. I deeply respect her. And she's highly intelligent and perceptive. And she said, we've lost our self-confidence. Do we believe in American leadership anymore? Do we have the, kind of faith that ronald reagan had in promoting democracy remember he used to talk about the city on the hill america can be a city on the hill and i think donald trump is not providing that positive solid visionary american leadership that reagan and eisenhower and fdr and john f kennedy gave us at important times of our recent history
0: All right. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. That was former Ambassador Nicholas Burns, a professor of practice at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. You can listen to his entire talk on our website. This week, we're going global and talking about the role of the United States in world affairs. Steve Hall retired from the CIA in 2015 after spending 30 years running intelligence operations in Russia and around the globe. He now lives in southern Arizona and writes and speaks extensively about his experience and the changing role of U.S. intelligence. We started our conversation talking about how U.S. relationships with Soviet countries have
2: changed during his career. It's really been a fascinating evolution. Uh, When I joined the agency in 1985, uh, of course, Russia was still the Soviet Union. But shortly thereafter, of course, uh, in the 90s, Uh, There were the uh, really cataclysmic changes uh, that resulted in the fall of the Soviet Union and then uh, the beginning of, I suppose, for lack of a better phrase, uh, modern-day Russia, or perhaps more accurately, Putin's Russia. And really, the story since the 90s uh, in Russia has been Putin uh, making every attempt to bring Russia back into and back onto uh, the world stage. Uh, A lot of times I will say, uh, sort of shorthand, is is that Putin's goal, one of his important goals, is to make sure that Russia remains uh, at the big boys' table. They can play when it comes to things like Syria or North Korea, uh, because they have this sense of being what they call a a, a great great country, uh, a great nation. And that is central. Uh, to what uh, they see themselves as, and that's that's really what Putin has been about for the past couple of decades.
0: And we see that, it seems, more and more um, as President Putin remains in office longer and longer. He's pushing back more and more and maybe returning Russia to the level where the Soviet Union was at the big boys' table, as you said, or, or trying to?
2: Well, that is certainly what, what, what Putin would like. There are some very significant difficulties uh, for him because Russia uh, is in a different situation, uh, both uh, politically and economically, uh, than it was back when it was the Soviet Union. I think to really understand what is central for Vladimir Putin is first and foremost Vladimir Putin. His first and foremost, his greatest goal uh, is to remain in power and to remain, uh, or to have the, to have Russia remain the type of country where where he can run it. And this is why you have, and this is common, of course, to many autocrats. I think you're seeing a similar thing in Venezuela and North Korea and other places. Uh, But the greatest threat to Vladimir Putin is the West and the United States. And, you know, for lack of a better phrase, liberal democracy, the spread of democracy worldwide is a great threat to Vladimir Putin. And that is why he is so concerned about what the United States is up to, what the European Union is up to, and why he has worked so hard and, frankly, quite successfully at splitting and dividing the United States and the West, thereby weakening them and thereby, of course, concomitantly strengthening his position.
0: When it comes to intelligence gathered in the field that is then given to policymakers uh, and and those who, who need that information, is all that information, for lack of a better term, actionable?
2: There's not much that goes on the cutting room floor. There's a collection process that goes on, which is what I, was, what I was primarily involved in. And of course, it's not all just human intelligence. There's signals intelligence that NSA and others do. But all of that comes together uh, in, frankly, what is one of the better processes that I've seen in the U.S. government. It all comes together. Uh, analysts across disciplines take a look at it. And then uh, it is simply forwarded to decision makers uh, to either decide, okay, this we're going to do based on the information that we have, or we're not going to go that way because, you know, even though we know this is what's going on from our intelligence, we're going to take a different path. So that's really the strong distinction between intelligence, collection, the accumulation of knowledge, but then what the policymaker decides to do with that is a completely different issue, and not an intelligence one, it's a policy one.
0: You wrote about, specifically, uh, the 2016 election. You said in the article you wrote that the CIA has the evidence of Russian hacking of the 2016 election, but there's only so much they can do with it, and they really can't make it all public. Explain to the public why that is true from someone who was on the inside.
2: Well, there's a lot of sensitivities that go with, you know, a phrase that I think we're all familiar with now, which is sources and methods. So, we, you know, you can never talk very much about how you collect something or who you collect it from. Uh, because, of course, these people, if you're talking about a human source, are literally putting their lives on the line by committing treason in their own country and providing a foreign government, in this case the United States, with secrets. Uh, and the intelligence community's responsibility is to take that raw intelligence, to produce finished intelligence, to vet it, to check it, to make sure that everything is you know, tracks with what with what seems to make sense. But then, at the end of the day, what you're doing is sort of handing an envelope, uh, or you know, sort of that sort of a figurative phrase. But you're you know, you're handing this information over to U.S. policymakers, who then have to make a decision. Okay, this is what we know. Uh, and what am I going to do with that knowledge? In many cases, uh, a policymaker will simply put that in their back pocket as they go into negotiations, thereby allowing themselves to know when the other guys, in this case the Russians, are lying or not, or to actually use that information and say, look, we know this, uh, and therefore, you know, don't try to beat around the bush. Uh, we know what's really going on. It's all part of the diplomatic uh, states cr- statesman and statescraft piece of how our government works in foreign policy.
0: We're talking with Steve Hall. He's a retired CIA officer. Since you retired from the CIA, you've written a, a number of opinion pieces critical of President Trump. Can you talk about the changes he's made to foreign policy, starting with staffing at the State Department?
2: You know, there's I have a whole number uh, of uh, gripes, I suppose, with, uh, with President Trump, uh, perhaps less so with his administration because I think that there probably are people who are trying to do the best they can as they serve under very difficult circumstances. But certainly uh, the State Department, uh, which is you know obviously a key part of our foreign policy uh, apparatus, has been, at least in my understanding, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of unhappiness uh, and therefore a lot of sort of an exodus, if you will, from, um, uh, from, from the State Department. A lot of career professionals have decided, look, this is not, not where I need to be in this particular administration, which is significant uh, because, and the same is true for CIA to a certain extent, You know, you sign up to work for the federal government, whether it's State Department or whether it's CIA or NSA or whatever, and you realize that you're going to serve under a whole bunch of different presidents. I mean, over the course of my 30-year career, I served under multiple presidents, you know, Republican, Democrat. And for the most part, I really didn't know what the political uh, affiliations of any of my colleagues were. That's sort of just the business. It's it's the ridiculosity of this whole idea of a deep state is betrayed once you're inside. And you see that really people just don't pay much attention to that. But I have to say that when the president of the United States or when he was a candidate, you know, compares CIA, for example, to Nazis, Um, When he says, I believe Vladimir Putin over what my own intelligence community is saying, that is nothing short of reckless, dangerous recklessness uh, when you're talking about how to do American foreign policy. And it's also, of course, not good for those institutions uh, which are built to help the president have the best information that he can possibly have so as to make the best policy decisions.
0: As someone who was in charge of people bringing in intelligence, when the president makes a statement like that, does it make it harder to recruit people?
2: It, you know, it depends, and, and the reason I hesitate is because you know, the recruitment process, which I won't get into in any great, in any great detail because it does get into sources and methods, uh, but there are books and so forth that have been written. In the human intelligence side, each individual is different. And so there are things that appeal to certain individuals that don't appeal to others. So, um, you know, does it make it harder? In some cases, it might. Uh, In some cases, it might not. But one thing that I think is absolutely true is, is that when you have a president like President Trump, who does things like bring in Sergei Lavrov, Uh, the Russian foreign minister, and uh, Mr. Kislyak at that time, the the Russian ambassador in Washington, into the Oval Office, has a back-slapping session with them where they are, you know, grinning and laughing. And he says, oh, by the way, I just got rid of that crazy guy, Comey. I mean, that sort of thing is really, really difficult for our foreign allies um, for the Five Eyes, as we call them. These are our closest intelligence allies, the Brits uh, and and others. Um, During that very same meeting, uh, you had the president reveal uh, a piece of information, my understanding is probably from the Israelis, without their consent, as far as I understand it. And that sort of thing, I guarantee you, will make our closest allies who provide us incredibly good intelligence think twice about how much they're gonna share in the future because I'm sure that there are senior foreign intelligence officers who normally deal with the CIA and other members of the American intelligence community who are gonna say, well, geez, if I pass this, who knows what that whack job in the, in the in the Oval Office is going to do with this? Who knows if the next backslapping session is going to be with the Chinese or the North Koreans? Who knows what's going to come out, especially if there's nobody else in the room when he has these meetings. So I can guarantee you, if I were a foreign intelligence officer who were contemplating sharing information with the United States, I would definitely be more conservative and say, let's think really hard before we pass this information to the Americans.
0: Does that attitude? put the US in danger at least in a foreign policy stance
2: well less intelligence less information is always you know worse than more information You know, am I saying that uh, a a close ally of the United States is going to hold back uh, when it came to, for example, threat information, a terrorist attack? No, probably not. I mean, nobody, you know, we're all human beings. Nobody wants to hold back the fact that there might be a bomb that's going to go off in Times Square or some example like that. But there are very sensitive things, especially with regard to, say, Russia, China, and some of the more complicated Uh, intelligence issues that uh, I think that they would and probably are uh, holding back and saying, look, with this administration, we simply can't be sure whether or not our information, which is very sensitive, is going to be protected in such a fashion that we feel comfortable passing it.
0: When we were talking with Ambassador Burns earlier in the show, he said, when we get a new president, be that the next election cycle or the election cycle after that, the damage that he was talking about, that you're talking about, that's been done with our allies, the governments will quickly come back. But it's the people in those allied countries that may take longer to come back to
2: respecting the U.S. Do you agree with that? I think it happens on a couple of different levels, and I would agree with Ambassador Burns. On one level, I think all functioning democracies understand that administrations come and go, Americans and otherwise, and that certain administrations have certain approaches and, um, you know, you get used to the sort of ebb and flow of the change of governments, not just in the United States, but of course with our allies. Uh, that's just part of democratic institutions, and so that's, that, that just happens. And, and I think that we will, you know, there will be a snapback type of situation once this administration goes And then another administration comes in. That said, uh, on a sort of individualized level, individual officers, whether you're a diplomat or whether you're an intelligence officer or really whatever you are, I think you are going to say, well, you know, where really is the United States going? The United States, you know, has long been, or at least since the end of the Second World War, uh, sort of the custodian uh, and the leader. Uh, of the post-World War II security, international security structure. I think a lot of erosion and a lot of damage has happened uh, during the Trump administration. And I think there's going to be a lot of legitimate questions that foreign allied governments are going to say, okay, well, what is the United States' role going to be? Whenever the Trump administration ends, there's going to have to be some retooling and some reestablishing of those relationships.
0: All right. Well, thanks for sitting down with us.
2: Sure. My pleasure.
0: That was Steve Hall, a retired member of the CIA who now lives in Southern Arizona. And that's the buzz for this week. A look ahead at next week, we sit down with the head of one of Southern Arizona's largest economic engines, Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show on iTunes. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. You can also find us on the phone app NPR One. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and Andrea Kelly is the news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.